I pray, Lord, that you would bring your power upon us right now through your word and that you would teach us, strengthen us, encourage us. I pray, Lord, that you'd, you'd give me even more love for your word right now, love for you, love for this flock and wisdom and revelation. Thank you that we can call upon you. You are so near. You love to help us. So come and unleash your grace and mercy and power through your word now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Good. The Bible uh, tells us really clearly in numerous places that Satan is a deceiver. He's, He's the master deceiver. And I want to start off this morning sharing with you what I think is one of his most devious deceptions. Just to to kind of lay the background, just to remind you, um, the Bible teaches, and we know from experience, that we've all rebelled against God. I have, you have, we all have. And the result of that, God in his justice has allowed, he's purposefully allowed the world, all of us, to come under Satan's power. He removed his blessing from the world. He's allowed the world to come under his curse, which in this life, in this world, means being under Satan's power. And so the picture that, that I think of often is it's, it's like we all were Satan's captives in, in Satan's concentration camps, in his, in his POW camps. But God didn't stop things there to display the glory of his mercy, to display his lavish love and goodness and compassion for us, God sent Jesus. And Jesus was punished for sin. So that when we put our trust in Jesus, when we we turn away from the other things we were trusting and put our trust in Jesus to satisfy us, forgive us, change us, provide for us, guide us, at that moment we will be freed. From, from Satan's concentration camp, from his prisoner of war camp. And so what this means is, if you're trusting Jesus today, here's what's happened. Jesus died for you, and something else also happened. Somebody crossed enemy lines, invaded Satan's territory, invaded Satan's prisoner of war camp, took the risk of doing all that, and shared the gospel with you. That's what somebody did. And then you responded and you put your trust in Christ and you were freed. The moment you put your trust in Jesus, you were forgiven and you were freed. You walked out of Satan's prisoner of war camp. That's what's happened if you're trusting Jesus right now. It doesn't stop there, though. Jesus calls all of his followers on a mission. And that is he calls all of us, he equips us, he empowers us by the Spirit, and he calls all of us to go back into enemy territory to invade Satan's prisoner of war camps, to set his captives free. So here's all these followers of Jesus. We're empowered, we're fully equipped, we're ready to go on mission, to enter back into Satan's enemy territory and to invade his, his concentration camps and set the prisoners free. And Satan hates that. So he's thinking, what can I do? He spends a lot of time thinking, what can I do? All these soldiers are going to be coming in, setting captives free, what can I do? Now he's... He knows it wouldn't work just to say, stop following Jesus. It's far more devious than that. And so he thinks of a, of a deception. And so what he does 
is he tells us, kind of whispers to us, you know, Jesus said if you're following him, you will have abundant life. Satan quotes scripture, right? Just like he did to Jesus in the wilderness. You know, if you follow Jesus, he said you'd have an abundant life. And then he tells us what his understanding of abundant life is. You'll have abundant life. You will never suffer. You'll have ease and comfort. You'll never be wounded. You certainly would never be killed. We like that. Well, that sounds, that sounds good. That would be abundant life. He says, you know, you'll have the life you've always wanted. Ease, comfort, no wounding, no suffering, you'll never be killed. And so we like that. And so the picture that ends up happening is, here you've got enemy lines right here, and you've got enemy territory, and here's Satan's concentration camps full of prisoners. And then you're looking for the soldiers. And you're going, okay, we're back into friendly territory, and way, way, way back, way back behind the lines are all these soldiers. Okay, fully equipped, spirit-empowered, thinking following Jesus means having abundant life. It means ease. It means comfort. It means we don't suffer. It means I won't be wounded. It means I'd never be killed. And so because they think that's what abundant life means, they would never cross over enemy territory where they might suffer and they might be wounded and they might be killed. That's the picture that we have. Okay? Soldier on the left, way back, but friendly territory. Soldier on the right, what we should be is advancing. Now think of what would happen if all those soldiers way behind enemy lines realized that they'd been duped and they, they, they searched the scriptures afresh and they see that you know, we're not following Jesus. Jesus has called us on mission. Jesus said we'd have abundant life, yes, but, but abundant life doesn't mean no suffering or no pain or not being wounded. It means that in the suffering and in the pain, we will have more nearness to Jesus than we ever could have imagined. And so they they move and they suffer and they see lost people saved and they experience more of Jesus' nearness than they ever thought possible. That's what I'm praying Jesus will do in our hearts today. I think it's really easy. Books, some TV, just Christian media, some well-meaning teachers, but they can imply that the abundant life means never suffering, ease, comfort, constantly increasing standard of living, material prosperity, no suffering, never being wounded, never being killed. They mean all those things. And so we think that's what the Christian life is supposed to be. And if I'm really following Jesus, that's what I'm going to be experiencing. And so we would never think of sharing the gospel with my boss. You'd only want to do this on your own time, though, of course, not on company time, right? But we never think of sharing the gospel with my boss because, well, that might jeopardize my job, and certainly the abundant life wouldn't mean having my job be jeopardized. Or we, we wouldn't think of sharing the gospel lovingly, humbly, graciously with our neighbor because that might make the relationship awkward, and certainly awkward neighborhood relationships isn't the abundant life that Jesus wants us to have. We'd certainly never think of going on a short-term missions trip to Morocco because there's potential danger there, and, and certainly Jesus wouldn't want I mean, the abundant life doesn't mean potential danger. And, and we'd, we'd never consider like moving my wife and kids to Central Asia to help an unreached Muslim people group come to know Christ. If that's what the abundant life is, we wouldn't do those things. But what if we're wrong? What kind of life are you expecting as a follower of Jesus? What kind of life does Jesus call us to expect? 
That's the question I want to raise this morning. And I want to phrase it this way. What does Jesus say life will be like between now and his return? He goes into great detail telling us what life will be like between Pentecost and his return at the end of history. So let's take a look at what life will be like. And the passage I want us to focus on this morning is in Matthew 24. So go ahead and turn there. And if you need a Bible, we'd like you all to have a Bible to look on with. So go ahead and raise your hand and we'll bring one to you. Matthew 24 is on page 829 in the Bibles that we're passing out. It's a powerful passage. It's also in Mark 13 and in Luke 21, I believe it is. Three different descriptions of what's called the, the Olivet Discourse. It's when Jesus is teaching about life between when he's teaching and the second coming. Matthew 24, again that's page 829 in the Bible just passed out. Let's start with verses 1 through 3 to set the stage. Verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, this is a little bit later, the disciples came to him privately. They were troubled by what he said about all the stones of the temple being destroyed. So they came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Now the disciples are asking, what's going to happen at the end? What's going to happen at the end of history? What's going to take place at the end? When's the end going to be is what they're asking. And Jesus tells them about that. But first, in verses 4 through 28, he tells them what's going to be taking place before the end. He wants them to be ready for life before the end, verses 4 through 28. And as I studied these verses, I saw nine descriptions of what life will be like before the end. So let's just go through them, one at a time. Nine descriptions. The first one, and I'll just take them in the order in which they appear in the passage. First is that many will be led astray by false Christs. Look at verses 4 and 5. Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. It's quite a shocking statement in light of their question. They wanted to know, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your return? Jesus says, See that no one leads you astray. Feel that? Why? Verse 5, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So Jesus' first concern is to make sure that we are not led astray. And this is a danger because he says there's going to be many false Christs. And he says they will lead many astray. So how do we avoid being led astray? Well, the false Christs will all say things that are not in accord with the scriptures. So study God's word. Keep your nose in the book. And be part of a community of believers. Here we, we do that in our home groups. Be part of a home group where brothers and sisters love you, pray for you, where the word of Christ is richly dwelling within you, where you're speaking the truth in love to each other, where you care for each other. That'll keep you from being led astray. But just feel the weight of this. first thing Jesus says to them is, see, brothers, see that no one leads you 
astray. Second, there will be wars, famines, and earthquakes. Verses 6 through 8. This is a stunning statement. Verse 6. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. If you've read that numerous times, you can just like wash right off of you. Let that hit you. Imagine, imagine hearing China is invading Canada. Okay, you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of war. Now get this next line. See that you are not alarmed. Not alarmed? We're all thinking, oh, you mean wars like over there? Well, wars and rumors of war. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, like in Chile yesterday. Then they will deliver, I'm sorry, all, verse 8, all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So Jesus is making it really clear that the time between his first coming and his second coming is not going to be easy. Right? Wars? But don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed at wars. Don't be alarmed at wars. These have to take place. Famine and earthquake. So understand, life between Jesus' first and second coming is not going to be easy. Don't you see how Jesus wants us to get that? It is not going to be easy. It will not be peace and comfort and ever-increasing prosperity. There will be wars and famines and earthquakes. And hasn't history proven that? Third, verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Well, now, what's that all about? As we'll see in verse 14, Jesus has called all of us to to tell people about who he is, his love, his goodness, the cross, his resurrection, his salvation, how we can be forgiven and changed and brought into the joy of knowing him. And so we're, we're going out to our neighbors and our friends and with love and humility and, and we're going across the ocean and to unreached people groups and we're sharing about who Jesus is. And as we do that, there will be many people who we will see, uh, we'll have the joy of seeing them brought into the joy of knowing Jesus. But Jesus is very candid He also says that there will be many people who will not respond and they will deliver us to tribulation and put us to death and and hate us. Now, okay, is this us or is this the apostles? That's one question I had right at this point. And I don't see any reason to limit it just to the apostles. But let me tell you why I say that. One verse. Look at Philippians chapter 1 verse 29. Joshua and I were just looking at this uh, Wednesday morning, whenever it was. This is a very powerful passage. Philippians 1.29, which is on page 980. And this is one of those verses where you can just gloss over and and miss what's really being said here. It's quite shocking. Philippians 1.29, page 980 in the Bibles we just passed out. So are you getting a feel here of of how Jesus wants us to be 
or what he wants us to be expecting in our lives between his first and second coming. So look at this. Here's another statement. Philippians 1.29. Paul is writing to all the believers in Philippi. And he says, For it has been granted to you. That word granted, Greek word charizomai, graciously granted. It's a, it's a very valuable gift that's given to undeserving people. It's been graciously granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So Paul gives every believer two very precious gifts, undeserved gifts. One gift to receive is believing in Jesus. If you're trusting in Jesus, he's given that to you. It's a precious gift, faith in Christ. But there's another gift, suffering for Jesus. You see that? If you're following Jesus, he's given you two gifts. He's given you faith. He's given you suffering. Do you see that? Okay, it's right there. I want you to see this. See, one of the reasons this message is so important to me is that it is so easy when you start to suffer, whether it's somebody who doesn't respond well as you shared the gospel or whether it's being laid off from work or whether it's medical issues, it's so easy for us to think, if I was really trusting and following Jesus, I wouldn't be suffering. I want to banish that lie from this church that is so wrong. That's a double whammy because you've got the pain of suffering, but then you've also got the pain of, if I was really close to Jesus, I wouldn't be suffering. That's wrong. Do you see? If you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, he gives you two gifts. He gives you belief, faith in Christ. He gives you suffering for Christ. So just, if you're under guilt... Because of your suffering, just let, let that just lift it off of you right now. But, but feel what he's saying here. Everyone who gets the gift of faith gets the gift of suffering. Two gifts. You don't just ever get just the gift of faith. You also get the gift of suffering. Now, how on earth could suffering be a gift? That may be a question. I mean, some of you, I know, some of you suffer with family members who are shunning you because of the gospel, with just difficulties you're having in, in the path of obedience to Christ, how could that possibly be a gift? Let me give you three reasons why. Here's what I thought of. Three words. Strength, nearness, and opportunity. One reason suffering is a precious gift is because Jesus promises to give you all the strength you need to suffer for his name. He will give you all the strength that you need. I, I read again about in Acts chapter 7 about Stephen as he's being stoned for the gospel. Remember the picture? Jesus gives him a a, a vision, or I'm not sure exactly what it was, but he saw Jesus at the right hand of the Father standing right there in heaven. He saw his glory. What a gift as the rocks are thudding into your body. See, listen, don't fear suffering Because Jesus promises he will give you all the grace that you need for whatever suffering he causes you to go through. He will be right there, weeping with you, standing with you, comforting you, strengthening you. So strength is the first word. Second word is nearness. Jesus promises to make his nearness phenomenally real in suffering. Jot down... um, It's 1 Peter 4.14. Here's what Peter says. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, reviled, insulted, put down, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. 
Peter says, because, why are you blessed and reviled? You're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Nearness, the nearness of Christ. You will experience more nearness in Christ than you could have possibly imagined was possible as you're walking the path of following Christ and experiencing whatever suffering comes. Then the third word is opportunity. Strength, nearness, opportunity. If you're a follower of Jesus, what you want more than anything else is to display Jesus' glory and to honor him. And suffering gives you a powerful opportunity to do that because as you're suffering, you can display that Jesus is worth infinitely more than whatever I'm losing in the path of suffering. So your peace and your hope and your joy that Jesus is worth it all that displays Jesus' worth. Suffering's a gift. If you're following Jesus, he's given you faith and he's given you suffering. Both are gifts. Let me give you one other scripture. You may not, not be convinced yet. You may not want to be convinced yet. Um, Acts 14.22. Now, I should just mention here, heaven is coming. Okay? Lest we forget. All right? We're just talking about life between now and the second coming. This is just like a blip in time. There will be a time when he will wipe every tear from your eyes. Right? Where there will be no more mourning. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. But before the second coming, it's war. It's war. It's like there's four quarters to the game. This is when we play hard. Okay? Game will be over. All right? Okay. Anyway, Acts 14.22. Um, you can turn there, but let me just read it to you. Here's the setting. Paul has planted churches, and then Luke says Paul goes back to those churches he's planted, and he preaches the same message in each one, and he gives us the the big idea. You know the big idea of his message in every one of these new churches? Here's, Here's what Paul preaches. Quote, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Every place Paul goes back through a church, he he wants to make sure these new believers get this. Listen, new believers, understand, you're heading towards the kingdom of God. It's necessary to get to the kingdom of God to go through many tribulations. That's the message he gave to them. Not that now that you're following Jesus, all your problems will be over and life will be easy and free from difficulty. He says, no, no, now that you've started on the road towards the kingdom, the road towards the kingdom goes through many afflictions, many tribulations. Which, by the way, is good news because if you're following Jesus and you're saying, you know, my path I'm on has like a lot of afflictions and tribulations. I guess that's the right path. Maybe, okay? Maybe. Talk to your home group about it. Anyway, I mean, do you understand that? It's like, wait a minute, there's all these problems. I must be on the wrong path. Do you see why Paul wanted to teach? No, 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 no. The path to the kingdom goes through many tribulations. Do you see how important that is to learn? You're not lost. Okay, that's the path. Okay, now just imagine that you're one of the disciples and you're on the Mount of Olives and Jesus is teaching this to you. And imagine what it would have felt like. He looks you in the eye. I mean, just imagine the 
the, the, the feeling of what it would have been like to be part of this band of brothers. Jesus is looking in the eye, and probably with tears, he says, Brothers, they will deliver you to tribulation. They will put you to death. And you'll be hated by all the nations on account of my name. What would that have felt like to have heard Jesus tell you that? Are you in? Do you feel that? Are you in? Now, I don't want to overstate this, but how can you overstate that? He said it. Okay, fourth. Verses 10 through 11. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. So many will fall away from Jesus. Many will betray other believers. Many will hate one another. Again, do you you see how important it is to Jesus to warn the disciples about what to expect in their lives? Just like Paul warned the early believers in Acts 14.22. Fifth, the love of many will grow cold and cause them not to endure to the end. Verses 12 and 13. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now notice, this is so important, so precious. What sustains followers of Jesus on the path of many tribulations is not duty or willpower. It's not mostly duty, willpower, or like self-discipline. It's love. It's love for Jesus Christ. We love him. Now some of you, if you have not tasted of Jesus' love, if you're like new here and you're thinking, boy, this this is the wrong church to go to. (laughs) That church is even positive these days, you know. Uh, Let me explain what the problem is. Um, It's that you haven't yet tasted the love that would make this all worth it. It's just the way it is. That's, 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 the, that's the problem. So I can understand if you're thinking, well, this is not what I want. I understand that because you, you have not yet tasted of the whole reason for this, which is knowing Jesus. When you come to know Jesus Christ, your heart will be filled with the love of God for you and his full forgiveness And you will be satisfied like you never thought possible forever. So just put this in context. If you don't know Jesus yet, just understand at least what we're saying here, okay? But understand the the, the importance of love. And what this means is that if you're lukewarm in your love for Jesus, then you're in a dangerous place. Isn't that what that means? Is your love for Jesus growing cold? Have you lost your first love? Is there something else in your heart that honestly you are really passionate about and Jesus has kind of shifted into the background? It's a dangerous place to be. Don't let that happen. Every day, take time to open up the scriptures. The scriptures is like a pipeline of God's love through the truth of his word. Every day, nurture your faith, nurture your love for Jesus through the scriptures. Fight the fight of faith every day. Okay, so that's the fifth one. Sixth, the gospel will be proclaimed to all the people groups 
and then the end will come. Verse 14, I love this verse. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Okay, so before Jesus comes back, here we see something really clear. Before he comes back, one thing that will happen is that the gospel will have been preached to all the people groups. And not just preached to all the people groups, but um, the gospel will have saved people from every people group, every nation, tongue, and tribe. I get that from Revelation 7, 9, and 10, where John sees a vision of heaven, a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tongue, and tribe. Okay, so we, followers of Jesus, are called to, to take this on as our mission. This is why we're saved. This is what he's called us to pursue. Take the gospel to every nation, tongue, and tribe. In other words, you're not called just to work your job and raise your family and retire well and go to heaven. It's not what you're... He didn't die on the cross just for that. Now, those all might have a place in his plan, but, but there's a reason for all those things you're doing, and that is to advance the gospel. To advance the gospel. I know this is, this is radical, but I, I just hope you'll see it in the book it's what, it's what Jesus taught. Our call is to, is to, here's enemy lines, our call is to cross enemy lines, to take on the risk, to invade Satan's prisoner of war camps, to preach the gospel and to, to set captives free. That's, that's what our mission is. Seventh, Jerusalem will be destroyed. That's verses 15 through 20. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. So in Daniel 9.27, he talks about this figure of godlessness, which is standing in the holy place. Okay? When you see that, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Flee! And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. So 600 years earlier, Daniel had prophesied that about this abomination of desolation, this figure of godlessness who would stand in the holy place. I think in these verses, Jesus is talking about this being fulfilled in two different ways. Okay? You can study this on your own. Here's my conviction. First of all, it, it was fulfilled... 30 years after Jesus spoke these words in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed. Okay, you can study that. Roman emperor came in and destroyed him. But you know what's fascinating? Uh, the church historian Eusebius wrote that believers at that time took these verses very seriously and as soon as they caught wind that this was happening, what did they do? They fled to the Mount Pella where they were protected from the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. It's fascinating to read that. But I think Jesus is also alluding to a future more, more complete fulfillment of this at the end of history, when the Antichrist appears. Okay, ninth. There will be, I'm sorry, eighth. There will be great tribulation. Verses 21 and 22. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. No, never will be. And if those days had not been cut short... No human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So the time before Jesus returns will be marked by great tribulation. 
Okay? It's like Paul said, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now some of you, when you hear the word tribulation, you're thinking, okay, where, what about the rapture? Okay? It's a good question. Uh, godly people, many, many godly people teach that there will be a rapture, which means that during this tribulation, remember before the tribulation is how they teach it, Jesus will take the church out to protect them from the tribulation that's coming. And uh, I wouldn't mind if that happened, okay? But I don't, I don't see that taught in the scriptures. And that might shock some of you. Okay, again, our vision here at Mercy Hill is that we all study the scriptures on our own. So you just take what I'm going to say here and you study, all right? But notice, for, notice, first of all, end of verse 22. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jesus is deeply concerned about the elect, his people, during the tribulation. He's deeply concerned for them. Yes. What does he do in his concern? He cuts the number of days short. Doesn't remove them from the days of tribulation. They're there, but he makes the days short. But look at one other scripture. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4, page 989. My dad shared this with me. I was in junior high. It's a long time ago, okay? And I came back from a, a junior high Bible study where the leader talked all about the tribulation and, and uh, we were reading Hal Lindsey's book and the rapture and, and I was all excited, talking to my dad all about it. And uh, my dad is so wise. He said, uh, he said, oh, Steve, sounds like the Bible study was a really great time. I can tell you're excited. He said, you know, before you, you make up your mind on all these things, make sure you read Second Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. I said, okay. And I did. And I remember reading that. Listen to what... You'll see why my dad asked me to read it. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit, like a prophetic word, or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So, do you see what that's saying? We will not be gathered to Jesus until after the rebellion and the man of lawlessness is revealed and the tribulation is taking place. Now again, study this on your own. But see, if your hope is that the, tribu- is that the rapture will keep you from ever suffering in this life, then, and if that's not true, then, then you're, you're in danger of being uh, very discouraged at minimum, right? So I just at least want to throw out the possibility that maybe... Maybe there's not a rapture. I haven't seen it in the Bible. So you study that on your own. Okay, ninth. Last point. False Christs and prophets will perform signs and wonders. Verses 23 through 28. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect See, I've told you beforehand. You see how Jesus wants us to understand what's coming down? I've told you beforehand. I'm warning you. So you get this. So if they say to you, verse 26, look, he's in the wilderness. Do not go out. 
If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will, will gather. Okay, false prophets will work miracles. We've we got to make sure we get this, all right? Great signs and wonders, healing the sick, raising the dead. This is not charlatanry, is that a word? These are not charlatans. Okay, these are real miracles, real healings, real people being raised from the dead, but it's not by Jesus' power. It's by Satan's power, like Moses' magicians, remember? We saw that two months ago. Pharaoh's magicians, thanks, hon. Okay, Pharaoh's magicians, very important distinction. But the point is, don't be misled. Miracles do not mean truth is being taught. Okay? Really important to get that. And he wants us to understand that the next time he comes to earth, or is the first coming, his second coming, it's not going to be like, you know, he's out in Modesto, let's all go see him. No, 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 no. It's that, or like, he's down at the Sheraton, let's all go pay 50 bucks or whatever. No, no, no. It's that, it's just like, you know how lightning goes, cross the sky. Everybody's going to know he's back. Everybody on the globe, all at once, will know that he's back. Okay. Those are the nine descriptions of what we should expect in our life between the first and second coming. Now, what questions does that raise? I like to ask questions just so that you, know, you can kind of help me not overstate things or, or understate them. Or maybe I said something that's confusing and then somebody else can help, help get it cleared up. But what, any questions that that raises? Really good questions. Satan is, Jesus has bound the strong man, Matthew uh, 12, 28 and 29. Good question. So if he's bound the strong man, how come we still suffer going into his territory? And I think the answer is that, that Jesus has bound Satan in, in, in certain areas, but not in all areas. He's bound Satan in his ability to hold people bondage when God's planning on saving them. And so he's bound for that. And so, so the binding doesn't mean that I'll walk across enemy territory, not have bullets hit me on the way. But the binding means that when I share the gospel with one of Satan's captives, God can use that to to free this captive, and so we go back across together. Does that make sense? So the binding is not on everything, because we see Satan working in various ways after the cross and the resurrection. So the binding has to do with Satan's ability to hold somebody in bondage, regardless of the gospel, what God chooses to do in his, his or her life. Yeah, maybe I'm wrong in this, but I'm just simply saying because he says there will be great signs and wonders done by false prophets. I don't see any reason to limit what those might be. And so like, like a, um, a cancer tumor being removed or a corpse being revived, oh, those are both pretty amazing. So I don't, I don't see any reason to, to limit it. Uh, somebody else can think of a reason too. Yeah, Revelation 13, the beast miraculously revives, so maybe that's, a, maybe that's a possibility to take a look at. And that doesn't mean that he was right. And I know, yeah, so that's a good question, though. Good question. Yeah, I'm, I'm not so sure it was the rapture per se, but it's that they, there was the idea that Jesus is going to come back so soon, man, I can you know, quit my job and just kind of hang out. And, and Paul says, well, no, work with your hands, do your job, pay your bills, and preach the gospel.
Well, let me, let me just draw a conclusion then here. Do you see where we're, where we're getting at this morning? What sort of lives should we expect? I do not want you to think that if you're f- following Jesus and really trusting him, your life will be abundant in the sense that you'll never have any suffering, never have any trials, never have any difficulties, never face any persecution. That's totally against what Jesus says. I want you to see that. But think about it. As you look ahead to your life on earth, what have you been expecting? Is it comfort? Is it ease? Is it prosperity? Is that that what you're looking ahead to? Because that's not what Jesus promised in this life. In this life. Okay? He promised tribulation and suffering and persecution. Do you see that now? I hope you do. He promised that as we advance the gospel in the path of obedience to Christ, there'd be suffering, there'd be tribulation, and there'd be... Persecution, And he promised that as we did that, we'd have the joy of seeing men and women come to know Christ. He promised that he'd give us all the strength that we needed. He promised he'd give us an unusual sense of his nearness, his firsthand experienced nearness, his love, his presence in our lives through the suffering, and we'd have opportunities to display his, his honor and glory in the suffering. So that's what he promises. So, what I want to call us to do is to cross enemy lines. All right? So we're back here, friendly, you know, friendly area. There's enemy lines. There's the prisoner of war camps. I just want to call us to cross enemy lines. And it'll, it'll be costly, okay? It will be costly to cross enemy lines. But, but cross enemy lines in the sense of here in the South Bay, here in San Jose, loving your neighbor, sharing Christ with somebody at the workplace, somebody in your, in your family who is not trusting Jesus, and just humbly appealing to them to, to, to let you share the gospel with them, not being pushy or bizarre or arrogant, humbly sharing the gospel. Cross enemy lines here in the South Bay. And consider crossing enemy lines by being part of a home group planting team that would branch out of your existing home group to go plant a new home group in a new neighborhood and share the gospel in that area of the South Bay. Consider doing that. That would be costly. It'd be sad. You know, we have, I just want to mention, we have uh, Jerry and Jan Uli who aren't here this morning. Jerry had cataract surgery Friday, but, but right now their kids are going to be going to Central Asia to work with an unreached Muslim people group. And their, their daughter is pregnant right now. And their grandchild, okay, is going to be halfway around the world. And this has been very hard for them. And rightly so. It should be, right? But see, this is part of them. Through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. It's the path of obedience. Yes, Lord, thank you that my kids are going to to do Bible translation for an unreached Muslim people group. And Lord, we'd love to see our grandchild more. It's going to be hard. But see, Jesus is going to comfort them. Jesus is going to meet them. And then in the final day, they'll be able to offer up, Lord, here's the suffering. You were worth it all. And there's these Muslims who've come to know Christ through their work. You're worth it all. Did you see what that will mean to have followed Christ to the hilt, come what may? So consider being part of a home group planting team to, to leave your, the comforts and the warmth and the love of your existing home group and start a new home group. I also want to challenge all of us to consider moving your wife and kids to a closed Muslim country to do church planting there. Consider it. Join Raj and Scout, who 
we sent out five years ago, and, and many, many others. Have you considered that? Do. Consider it. If you wouldn't consider it, do some very serious soul searching. I love you. I want to have a clean conscience about the flock here. If, if you will not consider that, if that's just too much for you, you, you need to ask, what, okay, what idol am I not willing to let go if he tells me to go do that? He may or may not be calling you to go, but you've got to destroy the idol. And I promise you, if we'll follow Jesus into enemy territory, we'll suffer. We will suffer, but you'll have the joy of seeing people come to know Jesus. And you will have more nearness with Jesus than you ever thought possible this side of heaven. Let's stand together. I want to pray this over us. I pray, Lord, for your work to be upon us right now. We're all at different places. Some here are already suffering big time. And I just pray, Lord, that right now you would bring even more of your nearness upon them, more of your strength upon them. Help them. Some here don't even know you, Lord, and this just sounds like a really bad deal to them. But, oh, Lord, I pray that right now you would set their hearts free and that you would pour your love into their hearts and they would taste that knowing you, Jesus, is worth everything. Give that to them right now, I pray, and so that they would turn away from whatever else they've been trusting and trust you, be forgiven by you, have their hearts changed by you. And Lord, some here may just be really full-fledged, passionately pursuing ease and comfort to the hilt under the name of Christ, and I pray, please, Lord, use your word this morning to help them see that they've been duped that it's Satan's deception so we would all be crossing enemy lines for the sake of the gospel. So come and do that, Lord, I pray, for the glory of your name. Bring your power upon us, Lord God.